All right, everyone, it's time to open up God's Word together. And today, once again, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. We've been in Ephesians for a while now. This is our second sermon, or third sermon, actually, in, verse, in chapter 4. We'll start in verse 11. We'll go to verse 16. Hebrews four eleven through 16 today. The maturing church. Have you ever met someone who was mature beyond their years? Perhaps they, they, they understand things about life that most people their age just don't. They've got a level-headedness about them that is very unique. People like that command a good deal of our respect, do they not? We, we like them. They're mature beyond their years. But what, what about the opposite? Let's think into our lives. But the last time we met someone, we were like, that person's, that person's immature. And they don't command a lot of our respect. Perhaps it's a grown-up that still acts like they're in high school. Perhaps it's someone who's obsessed with drama or gossip. You could go on and on. But we tend to not respect those type of people. Now, think back to your own life for a second with me. How humbling were those moments when we realized that we were being immature? When our immaturity embarrassed us, humbling or, you could say, humiliated us. When someone convincingly pointed it out. Because I don't know about you, but I've had plenty in my life. They humbled me. They humiliated me. But at the same time, do you remember how happy and proud it made you when someone complimented you for your maturity in a certain area? Right? You come away, even if it's not on the outside, on the inside, you're just beaming, right? My kids love that when they get complimented about their maturity. Sometimes I think we're losing our maturity as a society. The society that we live in, especially in the past, oh, I'd say seven, eight years, the online world has caused a bunch of us adults to act like middle schoolers consistently, and then you get praised for it. It's the society that we live in. But what does a mature church look like? That's the question today. What does a mature church look like? And by this, what I'm not meaning to say is that we want a church where everybody in here has been Christians for a long time and that's it. No new Christians, right? That'd be a very immature thing for a church to only want people in their church who've been Christians for a long time. By that, that that's not what we mean by mature when we say a mature church. What we mean is a church with a mature culture. And in our text today, we see that mature culture in a church in two very specific ways. So I'll read our text, and then we'll, we'll highlight these two very specific ways that Paul talks about a church having a mature culture or being a mature church. Let's start in our text. This is Ephesians 4, verse 11. We'll read down to verse 16. This is the word of God through the Apostle Paul. It says, And he, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children 
tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, I said we've got two very specific ways here in our text that Paul talks about a church being mature. And the first one comes in verse 14. Right at the beginning of verse 14, Paul says, This is all so that we may no longer be children. That we may no longer be children. Last week, we took an in-depth look at verse 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12, where Christ gave these gifts to the church when he ascended, when he departed this earth. He gave gifts to the church. And the gifts were in the form of people, people who served the church. We talked about how the apostles and the prophets were the ones through whom God gave his word. His word was given to the church through apostles and prophets. And then Christ gave evangelists to the church to spread the word and to gather in a flock. And then Christ gave the shepherds and teachers, which we talked about last week, are primarily elders in the church, to build the flock up, to teach the flock, and to shepherd them and grow them up to maturity. And all this is so that, verse 14, we as believers would no longer be children, that we would not remain as children. Now, what's interesting about this to me is Jesus said when he was on this earth that if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you better become like children. You need to become like a child if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so what's going on there versus what's going on here? Is this a, a, a genuine contradiction we've found in the Bible? Jesus says you've got to be like children. And Paul says, no, no, this is also that we would no longer be children. What's going on here? Well, Jesus, when he said that, did not mean that he wants us to be children in our knowledge or our wisdom. That he wants us to lack knowledge or lack wisdom like a child does. That's not what Jesus meant. One of the things that's really helpful is another one of Jesus' sayings that we find in Matthew ten sixteen, where if you remember, Jesus told us that he wants us to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves, both at the same time, right? As wise as serpents, as innocent as doves. So in your wisdom, be like serpents. Right? Be shrewd, be, be understanding, be wise, be cunning even at times. Not deceitful, like it talks about in our text, but be as shrewd as serpents. And then at the same time, in your hearts, innocent like doves. The book of Hebrews actually tells us that we must not remain children but rather we must go on to maturity in our knowledge of God and his ways. And so that's what Paul's talking about here. Paul is saying we must be always growing in our knowledge of God's word so that we would not be, like it says in verse 14, tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The knowledge of God's word is what we must be growing in so that we are no longer children like that. So that we are not taken in by these deceitful and cunning teachings that gain popularity. Now notice what he's not saying. What he's not saying is 
hey, uh, you know all those wacky things that people believe out there that everybody knows are false? Avoid those. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying all those teachings out there that are so fringe, lunatic-like, that they're so crazy that everybody knows they're false. Avoid those. He's not saying that. He's saying there are dangerous teachings out there, and they are dangerous precisely because they're cunning. They gain popularity precisely because they are attractive. He's not talking about the teachings that are so crazy that any old fool could identify them as false. It's the attractive ones. It's the dangerous ones. And so we're not talking about those things where all of us are going to sit in here and agree, oh, of course we're not supposed to believe that. That's not what we're talking about. It's not what Paul's talking about. It's the dangerous ones. It's the ones that are dangerous because they take people in by mixing truth with falsehood. Or perhaps they appeal to a strong God-given desire deep within us. You see, if you're out on the sidewalk one day and Satan shows up to you and he's all red and smoking and he's got horns and a pitchfork, you're going to be like, nuh-uh, turn the other side. It's easy to say no to that, right? It's easy to make the decision to avoid him then. But what if he does, as it says in 2 Corinthians 11, what if he disguises himself as an angel of light? Much more hard to discern what I need to avoid then, right? Much more dangerous because it's not so obvious. That's what we're talking about here. Paul is saying part of the reason why Jesus gave those gifts in verse 11 to the church, part of the reason why he gave those gifts is so that this wouldn't happen, so that we would not be blown about by every wind of doctrine. Those gifts are all centered on God's word. Remember? The apostles and prophets giving God's word to the people. The evangelists sharing God's word. The shepherds and teachers building people up in God's word. It's all about God's word. And so, knowing the truth of God's word is how we make sure we are not being led astray by deceptive doctrines and teachings. It's knowing the truth of God's word. Some of the books on Christian bestseller lists today are leading believers astray by teaching unbiblical things, and Christians are buying them up by the thousands and swallowing everything that's in them undiscerningly. Why? Because they don't know their Bibles. And because they don't know God's word, they're easily led astray by deceptive and cunning teachings. There are always deceitful doctrines gaining popular appeal in the church in any generation. And they tend, to, they tend to change from generation to generation, but there are always deceitful doctrines that are gaining popularity in the church and leading people away from God's truth, people who do not know their Bibles. Today is no different. We have deceitful teachings gaining popularity within the church. And when I say the church, I don't just mean Columbia Christian Church. I mean the global church, Christians in general, especially in America where we have our experience. One of them right now is the transgender movement. The transgender movement. Now we've been told ever since we were little that you can be anything you want to be. And we're seeing the logical conclusion of that playing out in our society right now. Just the other day, in a public statement... Our own president tried to make the case 
that it is morally acceptable for someone to want to change genders because we are all created in the image of God. Now that is attractive at first. That's deceitful, but it's attractive at first. Why? Because it's a biblical teaching that we are all created in the image of God, right? At first, that sounds attractive. We have been created in the image of God. But the conclusion that people make today is, if everyone's been created in the image of God, then I must need to say yes to every desire inside of me and embrace it because God made me this way. And people who are drawn aside by a deceitful teaching like that are drawn aside because they do not know the Bible. They do not take into account the fall of mankind, that sin entered the world and affected and infected all of us. And when mankind fell, our desires fell too. And so now all of us have innate, you you might call them natural, indwelling desires for sin that we have to say no to, that we have to learn to deny. When Christ calls someone to follow him, he doesn't say embrace the real you. He says, deny yourself. Deny yourself. Take up your cross every day and follow me. Die to yourself. And so all of us have sinful desires that we have to say no to. You might look out into society and say, well, I don't have to say no to those desires that everybody else is struggling with. I don't have to say, desire, I don't have to say no to a desire to become a, another gender I don't have to say no to a desire for same-sex attraction in my life. And perhaps you don't. And if you don't, that's fine. That's great. Good for you. But you've got to say no to others. You've just got different ones. Everybody's got desires inside of them. I've got a desire sometimes to, to do something inappropriate when somebody makes me mad. You know, punch somebody in the face or something like that. I've got to say no to that desire. Because that's part of being a mature person, but that's part of denying yourself to come to Christ. We've all got sinful desires inside of us that we have to say no to. It's just mine are different than yours, and yours are different than those people, and so on and so on. And so it's a misunderstanding of the Bible. It comes from not knowing the Bible, that a teaching like that leads people astray, but it's gaining popularity in the church. What you might consider progressive Christianity today, sometimes that's the label that it's given, is leading people away from the truth of Scripture and saying, no, we need to affirm whatever lifestyle anyone claims for themselves because that's coming from within inside of them. And whatever's inside of you must be okay because God made you in his image. It's nonsense, but it's deceptive. It's attractive, especially for those who don't know their Bibles. Let me give you a second today. Because these are important. These are the ones gaining popularity in the church today. It was probably much different 40, 50 years ago in the church. Generationally, it changes. But there were always deceptive teachings gaining popularity in the church. And here's another one. Women preaching. Now this is, I understand, going to step on people's toes. But we've got to be real with what's actually in the Bible and what's actually happening in the church today. The trend in the American church today is to appeal to our God-given sense that men and women are equals. And that's true. That's why it's attractive. That's true. Men and women are equal before God. Men are not more important than women before God. That's ridiculous. You won't find that anywhere in Scripture. But what you will find are different God-given roles in the home and in the church. And God has described them in his word 
And this trend today, while it values the fact that women and men are equal before God, it conveniently ignores passages in Scripture like 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12, or 1 Timothy 3, or Titus 1, or 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Because it's a desire within ourselves to not submit to Scripture, but have it submit to us. That's the question. Ladies and men, right? It's not just you ladies that have to submit to Scripture. It's every single one of us. It's just the men have to submit to it in some different ways than you do. Every single one of us have ways where we want to rise up on the inside of us and have Scripture submit to our own wisdom to where we're going to trust ourselves instead of trusting in the wisdom of God. Every single one of us has to face up to that in a way where the you know, rubber meets the road, so to speak. Women, this might be one for you. Men, there's going to be plenty for us too. When the rubber meets the road, are you going to trust God or are you going to trust yourself? Are you going to submit to God's word or are you going to make it submit to your desires and your own wisdom? We've all got to ask ourselves that question. So here's what all this means practically. Practically, let's just circle back around to what this is actually talking about. If you do not want to be easily led astray, if you do not want to be a child spiritually like Paul's talking about in verse 14, you've got to know your Bible. You've got to know your Bible. You've got to study your Bible. You've got to read your Bible. And I'm telling you right now, it's got to be much more than just one hour hearing a sermon one time a week at church. Those are the kinds of Christians who are easily led astray. You will not have a sufficient knowledge of God's word if the only way you take it in is by sitting in church for one hour a week and hearing someone preach what they have studied to you. That's a very important part of it. In fact, I think we can look at our text and say the main thrust of this text is that we should know God's word by availing ourselves to the teaching of the church. Because look back up at verse 11. Verse 11, what does he say? He gave, Jesus Christ gave the gifts to the church of apostles and prophets, evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints, to train the saints, so that we would no longer be children. Right? So the main thrust of this text is, we need to be availing ourselves to the teaching of the church, those shepherds and teachers at the church, so that we can be trained and equipped to be mature Christians, no longer children, not easily blown about by every wind of doctrine. Here at our church, we've got Sunday sermons, morning and evening. Now tonight, actually, we don't have an evening sermon, but usually we do. Morning and evening, we've got Sunday school classes, not just for our kids, but for adults, where we come together and we read God's word and ask questions about it and try to know it better. Wednesday evening Bible studies and more than just that. And so the question is, are you being equipped and trained in God's word? That is a big reason why we come together multiple times each week. It's a big reason why we do what we're doing right now is to equip one another in the knowledge of God's word so that we would no longer be children, so that we would not be easily deceived. We come to be trained in God's word so that verse 14 could be true of us. And so that's, that's the first way, specific way in our text that Paul talks about a church being mature. The second way comes in just one little phrase in verse 15. Look there with me. Verse 15, he says, rather, on the other hand, speaking the truth in 
love, we are to grow up in every way into him, into Christ. Speaking the truth in love. That's what we're going to focus on. That, that phrase is so important, we're going to need to spend some time on it right now. Now, there are two parts to it. Speaking the truth and in love. We are to speak the truth to one another, but we are to speak the truth to one another in love. Christians and churches get this wrong when they drop one or the other. And we all have a tendency to do that, to drop one or the other. Let me, let me look at those those errors with you in turn. The first error would be speaking the truth, but doing it without love, right? Speaking the truth, yes, but doing it without love. Some Christians and some churches are bold to speak the truth, both to one another and to the culture. If you're around them, you will know when you are in sin. They will tell you when you start believing something that is false or being led astray, perhaps. But as they do so... They lack love. Perhaps this might be some of us this morning, because I'm here to tell you, you're going to either tend toward one or the other of these errors. Here's the first, speaking the truth without love. This often comes from a prideful place, that we have the wisdom that someone else needs to hear. And if only they could just hear our wisdom, their life would be better, their life would be fixed. They see themselves as the knowledge dispensers, And all these other ignorant people need to benefit from their knowledge. And it often comes from a heart that looks down on others. From a heart that sees yourself as more spiritually mature than all these other children spiritually around me. Heart check time. Is this me? From those people. It comes from those people who see themselves as better than others. It comes from those who seek to correct others, not because you care about them as a person, but because their their disobedience or their lack of maturity or their lack of commitment bothers you. We are like this when we want to speak the truth to someone, not because we care about them, not because we want them to be closer to God, not because we're thinking about their life in love, But because their disobedience, their weakness, their lack of commitment bothers me. And so I want to speak to them and correct them because I want my life to be more comfy. I want my life to be better. That's why I'm speaking the truth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers to understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Without love, it doesn't matter how right you are. Now, you've got to be careful here. You've got to be really careful here. Our sinful flesh has a tendency to listen to sermons and to be that Pharisee standing before God saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. We've got to be really careful here that we just think, yeah, all those people who speak the truth to me without love. I'll tell you right now, there are some Christians, and I, I think I've probably done this in my life. There are some Christians who, anytime someone speaks the truth to them, even if they're doing it in love... They can't take it. And so they get defensive and they say, you don't love me. You're being judgmental. You you need to be quiet. You need to worry about yourself. 
when an actual biblical rebuke is what is needed, and someone gives it to them in the spirit of love and maturity, and you say, "Uh uh-uh, don't bring that to me. And then they're embittered against Christians because someone dared to speak the truth to them, when in reality they just couldn't take it. They didn't have the humility to take it. And so they blame it on everybody else. And what was really going on was an actual speaking the truth in love rebuke. So we've got to be careful here. We've got to be careful here. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do, we'll see in just a moment, sometimes the most loving thing you can do for someone is rebuke them. So that's one, that's one way to fall off the biblical path on this, to speak the truth but have no love. But the other way, the other way is to refuse to speak the truth in the name of love. And I'm here to tell you, I think this one is the one that, that we struggle with more in a place like Columbia, Kentucky. Excuse me. A place like Columbia, Kentucky. I think this is more prevalent in, in an area of the country like this, the Bible Belt, where we value Southern hospitality. And so in the name of love, we're not going to speak the truth. In the name of love, we're not going to say anything. Don't rock the boat. We just want everyone to be happy. The second someone broaches a sensitive subject, you hush it up, because that's going to create problems. And in the name of love, we refuse to speak the truth. Speaking the truth without love is a problem, but this one right here, I think, is more our problem in cultures like ours. Many years ago, the atheist magician from the duo Penn and Teller, Penn Gillette, he's the tall one with the long hair, came out with famous YouTube video where he's talking about Christians sharing the gospel. And he said, surprisingly, he said, I don't, he's an atheist, remember. And he said, I don't get Christians who don't share the gospel. I don't get that. Because if you believe there is a hell and that people are going there, if they don't come to Jesus, how much do you have to hate somebody not to warn them about that? And that, that, that hit me like a ton of bricks when I first heard it and still does. Rick Warren once said, our culture has accepted two huge lies. Number one, if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. Number two, to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. You understand what he's saying there? It's not unloving to care about whether someone will spend eternity in hell or not. And sometimes the most loving thing we can do to someone is to say something to them when they are walking away from the Lord because we care about where they'll spend eternity. You've got to be careful. It's not that, that thing that we talked about earlier. It's not just me being bothered by them and me wanting them not to annoy me. Right? But if I really care about someone, if I really care, it would be unloving to let them just walk comfortably to hell. It would be unloving. To see them stumble to hell and do nothing. That would be unloving. To say something, to speak the truth in love is what we are going for. To speak the truth in love. Let me give you three biblical examples of these real quick. Three biblical examples so you can kind of see what, what does this look like when Christians speak the truth in love to one another. What does this look like in a church where people are maturing, speaking the truth in love. Here are three biblical examples that can serve as three ways for us to do this. Number one, I want to point you to Acts chapter 4, verse 36. 
Acts chapter 4, verse 36. Sometimes what people need is encouragement from God's word. Encouragement. So sometimes speaking the truth in love won't be like rebuke. It'll be encouragement from God's word to speak the truth because I love you. I'll speak God's truth to you. Look at Acts 4.36 on the screen with me. It says, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And then it goes on to say more about him. Now, notice something here. This is not even the point of the text in Acts 4, but it's a wonderful little inclusion This guy's name was Joseph. Have you heard of Barnabas in the New Testament? That's not his name. His name's Joseph. They called him Barnabas. Barnabas was a nickname. And he got that nickname because he was so encouraging that they started calling him the son of encouragement. We're not going to call him Joseph anymore. We're just going to nickname him son of encouragement because he's so encouraging. He's doing so much of this all the time. He got that nickname from the apostles. He he was blessed with the gift of encouragement and he was spreading it all around to everyone who encountered him. Sometimes what people need is encouragement from God's word. Sometimes what our brothers and sisters need is encouragement. And I'm not just talking about, hey, everything's going to be okay. I'm talking about spiritual encouragement from the word of God, speaking the truth to one another because we love one another. You sense that with people. Be ready. Be ready to encourage someone with God's word, with God's truth. Not just with our own, but with God's. So sometimes that is what it looks like. But sometimes what is needed is a firm rebuke because you care about a person's walk with the Lord. You don't want to see someone walk away from God. We see this in Galatians 2, starting in verse 11. Paul writes... But when Cephas came to Antioch, and Cephas is another name for Peter. That's actually Jesus' Aramaic nickname he gave to Peter. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. It even says later, Peter's actions led other Jews into the same Sin. Now, can you imagine looking on as Paul rebukes Peter and, and just silently going, you know, you, know, you can't, can't believe this is Paul and Peter here, two pillars of the early church. And Paul rebukes him to his face because his actions are not in step with the gospel. But that was what was needed. Spoken the truth. He's speaking the truth in love to Peter because he doesn't want to see Peter walk in a way that is not in step with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's a second. Here's a third. Sometimes speaking the truth in love means teaching somebody, helping somebody come more in line, into into line with God's word, helping somebody believe the truth of God's word more accurately. Listen to Acts chapter 18, verse 26. It's talking about a man named Apollos who was a a bold preacher for the gospel in the early church. And it says, He, Apollos, began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They spoke the truth in love to him. He's preaching the gospel. They love that. They're excited about that. But perhaps there were some ways where he wasn't explaining it right. He wasn't getting things right. He was saying some things that could be unbiblical. So they took him aside privately and in love, helped him to understand the way of God more 
accurately. We speak the truth in love to one another. I've had this displayed to me in a way that I'll never forget. My mom's here today. My mom's dad, his his name was Larry Coffey. He used to preach over here right outside of Glasgow at a, a small church of Christ in Randolph. And he came up to me one day when I was younger. I was just called into ministry, I felt like, and my my zeal was high. But as is often the case with young people whose zeal is high, my humility was not uh, as, as high as it needed to be. But he came up to me one day and wanted to talk to me in private. Actually, at my aunt's house. I'll never forget where I was. He wants to talk to me in private where no one else can hear. And he, he had tears forming in his eyes as he began to talk to me. And, and he began to tell me that he thought I was veering into unbiblical territory in one of the things that I believed. And now, now he had tears in his eyes when he did it. And so I knew right away he was speaking with love. He had a concern for our relationship, but I also knew right away once he started talking, he had an even greater concern for my soul and an even greater concern for the glory of God and the truth of his word. Now, believe it or not, it was actually something that I think to this day we would have disagreed on. He, he didn't actually convince me of the thing itself. But I've never forgotten that, and I respected him all the more for it. I loved him all the more for it, because he stood up for the truth of God's word and spoke that truth to me in love. Tears, because he didn't want to risk our relationship. He loved me, but I, I knew that, that love was coming through, and it was a loving rebuke in the truth coming from a man who was serving the Lord and seemed like in good conscience before God could not stand beside and say nothing. I respected him so much more for that. We've got to speak the truth in love to one another and we've got to receive, receive the truth with love as it is spoken to us. These are signs of the maturing church, a mature culture in the body of Christ. This all culminates into us growing up, verse 15 says, growing up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Christ is our head, brothers and sisters. The church is the body of Christ. Verse 13 says, we are to grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Verse 15 says, we are to grow up into our head who is Christ. It begins with Christ. It ends with Christ. And in the middle, guess what? Christ. The life of the church and the life of every individual Christian begins with Christ. The gospel message of Jesus Christ, who has died on the cross for your sins, so that anyone who believes, anyone who trusts in Christ and comes to God through him, could have their sins forgiven and can be made right with God and can have eternal life. It begins with Christ, but it ends with Christ. The return of Christ. We are waiting for his return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's the very end of the Bible, and it's our prayer consistently. We long for his return, those of us who are truly in him. It begins with Christ. It ends with Christ. And in the middle, it's Christ. We are built up by the gifts that Christ has given the church. Verse 11, we are growing into the fullness of Christ. Verse 13, with Christ as our head, verse 15. As we come together each week on the Lord's Day, what we're doing right now, we welcome one another in the name of Christ. We proclaim the death of Christ through communion. We pray in the name of Christ. We worship 
Christ, and we preach Christ crucified. It is Jesus Christ from beginning to end. The A to Z of the Christian life, it all goes back to Christ. None of this is detached moralism, self-help, just a, a sermon getting us up to be better people apart from Jesus. It all has to be in Christ. None of this makes sense. None of this holds. None of this has any power without Christ. It is Christ from beginning to end, brothers and sisters. And to those of you whom I cannot yet call brothers and sisters, because you have not yet come to Christ, you have not yet been born again, I plead with you, Christ is coming. Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead. Christ is coming to take those who are his own and protect them from the wrath of God. Will you be in that number? Have you come to Christ? Have you been born again in Jesus Christ? Because God says, if you don't come to me by Christ, you don't come at all. You can't come to God if you don't come through Jesus Christ. He's died for your sins on the cross. And now he waits for those who will put their trust in him in faith. He waits for those who will pledge their allegiance to him and be on his side when all is said and done. And for those who do not, they stand condemned already. And that condemnation will only play itself out in the judgment and wrath of God for all eternity. Are you prepared to meet Christ? Are you prepared for the return of Christ? We're going to spend just a few moments right now in silent prayer, responding to God, to what he has given us and to what he has laid on each one of our hearts, reckoning with the truth that we just saw. Each of us will likely respond to the Lord in different ways, and this is why we give this time of prayer, so that each of us can go to him individually I encourage you, I I ask you to spend this time in prayer dealing with the Lord as he is dealing with you and your heart. After we spend a few moments doing that in individual prayer, we'll come back and we'll have a time where anyone who needs to respond to God's word publicly can do so. Let's pray.